Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to bring you the news this week. Derek, let's just get into it. And actually, before we get into it, I want all of our podcast listeners to appreciate that you and I don't bullshit around for like five minutes. And so no one has to skip. We just get into it. So I want you all to know that I know that's what you want. And that's what we give you. Are are we subtweeting somebody here? (laughs) No, no. It's just like there's all these podcasts where people like, and this is what we're doing right now. So sorry, we'll do it once where people like... Update me on their lives. I mean, I, I come to you for a specific thing, podcast, please. I I, I don't care. I, and I know okay, you well, are. <laughs> I was going to apologize for my voice because I have like a cold or allergies or something, but I'll I'll I'll, I'll forego that since we're not talking about our lives. Yeah, Jake, cut that out. All right. So let's start <laughs> with the uh, with the, the news. Uh, so earthquake update, Derek. Yes, there's actually a little bit of good news on the earthquake front. I should get the the very bad news out of the way, I guess. The death toll, uh, the confirmed death toll, uh, has climbed to over 42,000. As we're recording this, it will probably be higher than that by the time anybody uh, listens to it. Um, Again, this is just the confirmed death toll. This is people, you know, actually pulling... uh, bodies out of rubble so uh, the actual death toll is, is uh, you know, presumably considerably higher uh, but as I say there is a little bit of good news here the Syrian government agreed uh, on Friday to open uh, I believe two more crossing points for humanitarian aid to come into northwestern Syria the uh, uh, earthquake hit part of Syria from Turkey uh, now, there was already one border crossing point open for just the delivery of humanitarian relief to, to refugees and displaced Syrians. That was already functioning. Uh, it was inadequate even to the task of, of you know, the, the need for aid in that area, uh, even before the earthquake. And the earthquake apparently damaged some of the roads and, and has made it uh, more difficult to get uh, trucks in and out. So uh, these two, uh, at least two, I think, additional border crossings uh, should help boost the, the, the international community's ability to get uh, aid into northwestern Syria. Um, w- at least one of those crossings opened uh, on Monday, I believe, uh, which, uh, you know, if you were like me and you were a little bit skeptical about this announcement, that, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it might not actually come to pass. It does seem to have uh, come to pass. Now, there's also the possibility of sending aid via the Syrian government. That's complicated by uh, ongoing questions about Western sanctions. The U.S. has issued a blanket waiver for earthquake relief, but as anybody who understands sanctions knows, uh, those waivers do not account for the chilling effect on banks and other financial institutions. They don't account for really the direct sanctions on banks, let alone the chilling effect uh, that any sanctions on a country have on institutions that don't want to even risk running afoul of, of the U.S. government. So, um, you know, that's still a little dicey. There are questions about whether rebel groups in that part of the country, uh, Hayat or Sham, the former Al-Qaeda affiliate, which, uh, affiliate, which controls much of Idlib province, uh, whether they would even be open to accepting aid from the Syrian government. And there are, you know, the usual um, corruption kind of, you know, creaming off concerns uh, about the Syrian government that would exist really 
in in any operation, but the, uh, the Syrian government does not have a lot of uh, friends around the world these days. So uh, those concerns are maybe uh, highlighted or um, intensified. Uh, so this is all, I think, positive news. Um, in Turkey, uh, you know, in terms of, of just kind of getting relief to people who need it. Uh, in Turkey, there's a piece uh, in World Politics Review, uh, or was a piece of World Politics Review a few days ago, uh, from Lina Khatib that uh, outlined uh, what is becoming kind of alongside the question of relief and, and how do we help people uh, is becoming the, the main story here, which is the politics uh, of disaster relief and of the earthquake itself. Turkey is supposed to be going to a general election in May. Uh, it may now be delayed. Uh, that delay would ostensibly be because of the effects of the earthquake, uh, but you can make the case that it would be uh, because... Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan doesn't want to go to re-election under a cloud of criticism for the things that have gone into this earthquake. But what uh, Hatib writes about is, for example, um, there was an earthquake tax that the Turkish government instituted after a, a major earthquake in Izmit in 1999. Uh, it's now come to light that a lot of the money that went, it was raised by that tax, which was supposed to, supposed to be uh, put aside for just such a, a circumstance, has been diverted uh, into public works projects, many of which seem to have been run by uh, friends, pals, associates uh, of Erdogan. So that's uh, that's a little dicey. Uh, there are criticisms of building code violations that have maybe made the damage more severe uh, and Turkish authorities possibly looking the other way as companies uh, put up buildings that didn't weren't up to code. Uh, the The speed of the response has been criticized. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff going going on here that that works to Erdogan's detriment and and may uh, encourage him, let's say, to postpone uh, the May election. But we will see. Thank you, Derek. Uh, let's do a Ukraine update. Uh, yes. So the situation in Ukraine continues to be fixated on Bakhmut, uh, the head of the Wagner Group, who is increasingly uh, becoming prominent in a public way, uh, in a way that he kind of uh, seems to have shunned previously, but he seems to be embracing the spotlight. Uh, I'm not sure how well that's going over with the Russian government, frankly, but uh, he claimed on over the weekend uh, that his Wagner Group forces had captured a village on the northern outskirts uh, of Bakhmut. Uh, I see reports uh, today, Thursday, as we're recording this, that uh, the Russians may have all but encircled Bakhmut, uh, so that city may be in real danger. The, the Ukrainians have advised uh, the few civilians, there's only about 5,000, I think, which, uh, you know, if you look at the pre-war uh, population of the city, is, is very small, uh, a very small number of civilians uh, still left there. Uh, presumably, they either don't want to leave at this point or can't for some reason or another need assistance, which is uh, hard to, to arrange under the circumstances. Uh, but they've advised those civilians to leave Bakhmut. Uh, I don't think they're terribly confident about keeping, uh, maintaining control of it for very much longer. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the Russians are still uh, talking in terms of weeks before they actually take the city. Uh, I saw a suggestion uh, in a report today that it might not be until April uh, that they're actually able to move into Bakhmut and, and take it. Uh, I don't know what this says for the uh, supposed 
winter slash spring military offensive that the Russians are either going to undertake or may already be undertaking the, the Ukrainians. And I think the British uh, defense ministry and a, a few other kind of observers have suggested that it's already begun. Um, you know, they've made some advances in other places in eastern Ukraine and Luhansk, the, the, the little bit of Luhansk that's under Ukrainian control now uh, may be at risk. But presumably the goal here is to take Bakhmut and then go further uh, to try and take what whatever's left of Donetsk Oblast that's still under Ukrainian control to try and take control of that. Um, you know, it's, it's still slow going, even if the Russians are pouring more, uh, you know, all these hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, 300,000 or whatever it was, uh, men that they called up in last year's mobilization, you, you know, as they're pouring them into this, it still seems to be taking a, a very long time for them to advance, which, which probably means they're taking heavy casualties, uh, kind of grinding along. They are advancing, but, but, uh, I think things are going still relatively slowly. Uh, off the battlefield, uh, the Russian government announced that it is cutting oil production by 500,000 barrels per day starting in March. Uh, this is supposedly in response to the cap that the European Union and the G G7 imposed on the price of Russian oil. Uh, I suspect it has more to do with the fact that they've kind of maxed out their alternative uh, buyers uh, for Russian oil with, with Europe, most of Europe no longer on the table. Uh, and so they just can't justify maintaining the same level of production. This will probably cause, um, and already has, I think, caused oil to uh, spike a little bit. The other major oil-producing nations in OPEC Plus uh, announced after that that they would not be uh, collectively increasing production to try and make up the difference. So it, it does mean a maybe a decline in the, the supply of oil, the overall supply of oil. But I haven't seen any uh, huge shifts uh, in the price of oil. Um, on the Ukrainian side... Uh, there is, uh, there was an indication in the Washington Post, uh, on Monday that the Biden administration, while it is putting together another huge package of financial aid and, and presumably some military aid, uh, to the Ukrainians is trying to impress upon them that politics are going to, uh, eventually cause this kind of gushing wide open spigot uh, of weapons and ammunition that has been flowing into Ukraine to, to restrict at some point, uh, there have been Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives and Republicans now control that body who have suggested they might take a more skeptical view of aid to Ukraine and might uh, kind of uh, put some limits on that. I'll believe that when I see it. Uh, but other NATO members, uh, aside from the U.S., the politics at some point may become unfavorable to continuing this kind of just uh, huge outflow of arms. And even on a practical level, uh, many of these countries are running out of ammunition, according to I mean, there have been a number of reports about this, that the Ukrainians are burning through uh, ammunition faster than, than it can be produced. Uh, so that's going to limit things. Uh, there's some uh, effort, of course, to train the Ukrainian military around a, a number of things, kind of, you know, tactical, uh, you know, Western combined arms ways of fighting. And that may include a little more selectivity in targeting and and sort of, uh, finding ways to conserve ammunition. But, uh, you know, anyway, uh, this is apparently something the Biden administration is trying to impress upon the Ukrainians. Uh, I don't know that it's having any effect, uh, but uh, it is interesting that that's out there and, and being talked about uh, even in a uh, you know very mainstream uh, rag like the Washington Post.
Is the Russian cuts in oil production going to have a defect, uh, effect on their domestic political economy? I don't think so because uh, there's a couple of, I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, this price cap, which is their uh, excuse for for cutting uh, oil, they can always portray that as sort of a Western uh, attack on Russia. The you know the fact that the price cap exists at all. Uh, the cap is set so high that I don't think it's impacted Russian oil revenue at all. Uh, I would be surprised if there was a, a even a relatively small impact, let alone a major one. Um, and again, I think the the real rationale here may be that you know we're selling as much as we can and, and we're still producing too much. So I, I don't see it having a, a huge impact on uh, the state of the Russian economy and therefore on uh, political uh, on its on its politics. But you know, I mean, I'm not. Uh, uh, I don't have a. a, a red phone line to Vladimir Putin. So I, I don't know whether that's, I mean, you will see, I guess. Let's talk about Finland and NATO. So uh, this is an interesting development as well. As people know, Finland and Sweden have been uh, for months now uh, kind of uh, on tinderhooks waiting for the Turkish government. Basically, Hungary also has yet to act, but it's Turkey that's been the, the main point of contention here to approve their applications uh, for NATO membership. Uh, all along from the beginning, uh, the Swedish and Finnish governments have said uh, they not only need, they not only do both of them need to go into NATO, they need to go in together. It, their security depends on doing this as a collective. It would be detrimental for one to get in and the other one to still be on the hook or, or to not get in at all. Uh, the Turks, uh, Turkish officials have suggested uh, very uh, uh, kind of strongly at this point uh, that they do not want to approve Sweden's membership because the Swedish government hasn't done enough to address Turkey's concerns about their bilateral relationship, about Sweden kind of uh, as a home for uh, various people who are wanted on more or less legitimate, often less legitimate charges, criminal charges uh, in Turkey, uh, Kurds, Kurdish activists, uh, Turkish political activists, and, and so forth. Um, so the Turks aren't happy with Sweden. They've they've talked about, you know, we're not in a position to approve Sweden's membership. Um, they've also suggested that they are in a position maybe to approve Finland's membership. So this could proceed uh, on separate tracks. Again, the Finnish and Swedish governments have, have pack packaged themselves uh, as a joint deal here. But what's interesting is on Tuesday, uh, the Secretary Gen General of uh, NATO, again, Stoltenberg, uh, appeared during a, a meeting of alliance defense ministers in Brussels to suggest that NATO might be okay with uh, Finland coming in and Sweden still being on the hook. Uh, he suggested that it was m more important that both countries become members as soon as possible for either one than that they become members simultaneously. So strong indication that, you know, we should just go ahead uh, with, maybe we should just go ahead with Finland and and leave Sweden to be uh, debated further. I've seen I haven't seen anything from either the Finnish or Swedish governments. It would be interesting to see or to hear what conversations the Finnish government might be having uh, at this point around this issue because they may not uh, they may, they themselves may not want to be tied to Sweden anymore at this point. But uh, uh, just another interesting development that I think uh, suggests a possible direction that this story could go. Are Sweden and Finland fake friends or not? We will exactly. let you know soon. Yes. Let's head a little south and uh, talk about the political arrest in Tunisia.
Uh, there have been a number of these uh, people uh, presumably know that uh, Tunisian President Kais Saeed has uh, essentially uh, dissolved that country's democratic institutions. He's ruling more or less by decree. They did have a very low uh, turnout parliamentary election, but the parliament has been, uh, through a series of constitutional changes, has been rendered much less powerful uh, and Saeed's executive office has been greatly empowered. Uh, so, you know, he's basically ruling as a one-man show at this point. Uh, since uh, Saturday, uh, there have been a spate of arrests of the political variety, basically. Um, you know, leaders of or senior officials in political parties that have opposed Saeed's uh, efforts here, that oppose the changes he's made to Tunisian politics. Um, you know, just a number of political opponents. And I think uh, as of uh, Monday, it was like 20 uh, such people had been arrested since Saturday. I haven't seen reports of additional arrests since then, but it's possible uh, there have been. Um, you know, it, it just cements, I think, the the idea that this guy, you know, this has really become a dictatorship. Uh, there's not even much of a pretense uh, of democracy anymore. Now, Saeed has defended everything that he's done. He claims that uh, the the people he arrested or his government arrested have somehow been involved in uh, causing food shortages and price increases. I don't know how that, maybe they invaded Ukraine. I don't know. Um, but uh, he's also on, he also on Thursday uh, clapped back at the U.S. The State Department had uh, said it was deeply, back, 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 deeply back. concerned. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, said it was deeply concerned about the arrests and Saeed basically said, uh, you know, uh, stay out of our business, which is the, the typical response to these kinds of criticisms. Uh, so yeah, it's not, not a, not a great sign. Uh, if you're, uh, still for some reason holding out hope that Saeed is planning on at some point relinquishing his, uh, essentially unilateral power and, and moving Tunisia back to some more, uh, normative democracy or democratic, uh, institutions. Uh, these, these arrests are not a great sign. Let's talk about Lula's visit to the United States. Yes. Uh, Lula, who is coming off a month in which, uh, his government oversaw a 61% decline in deforestation, uh, in the Amazon compared to January, 2022. when, of course, Jair Bolsonaro, who, uh, you know, would cut down any tree that he saw, I think at this point. Uh, so that's, that in itself is good news that, that that's a whopping decline. Lula's, you know, talked about, uh, eliminating deforestation. It's going to take some, some time for that. And one month certainly does not, uh, indicate a trend. We'll see what, uh, how things play out. Uh, but he did visit Washington on Friday. This was billed as the, you know, big, Lula's first uh, uh, big trip abroad, his first stop was the United States. This was seen as uh, somewhat symbolic uh, or symbolically important. Um, they agreed to, they, they made some agreements, and there's a piece in The Nation uh, by Andre Pagliarini, who's a, a you know, Brazil uh, analyst. Uh, he, he, as he said, they, they came to some agreements on things that are not controversial for either one of them. So uh, deforestation was one, supporting uh, the preservation of the Amazon. There are certainly areas in which they agree uh, on uh, politically, like, uh, for example, how does one deal with the uh, 
devoted fanatic supporters of a past right-wing strongman president. Uh, <laughs> both of them have some experience in that area. Uh, so they no doubt discuss that. They seem to get along, which is, uh, you know, I guess positive on a personal level. Uh, but they, they divested from one another pretty quickly on the subject of uh, foreign affairs. Uh, of course, the Biden administration is, uh, wants every country in the world to uh, pick a side when it comes to the war in Ukraine. That's, that's the big uh, cause of the day, according to the Biden administration. Lula was very careful not to do that. Uh, they did issue a statement condemning the invasion, and Lula went a little further rhetorically and uh, criticizing Russia, but he did not sign on to any uh, you know, sanctions or doing anything tangible to impact uh, the Brazil-Russia relationship. And he also uh, steered very well clear, I think, of, of taking any position that aligns with the U.S. on China. Now, you know, none of this is to suggest that uh, Lula's a, a, a dirty red or that he's, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's uh, uh, puppet or something like that. Uh, as Pagliarini talks about, it, it simply is an extension, really, of uh, the foreign policy that Lula followed during his first stint as president, which was very much non-aligned. His, his allegiance was to the, the global South collectively and trying to build uh, the political and financial capacity of the global South with Brazil as, as a leader in that project. And that's what he seems to be doing here. He's not willing to, uh, you know, kind of put his foreign policy at the behest of the United States or uh, to just kind of blindly follow U.S. interests. He's doing what's right for Brazil and uh, maintaining relationships with uh, the Chinese government, with the Russian government. Um, and again, probably trying to to expand on uh, some of the efforts that he made to, to boost the global south during his last stint as president. This has uh, been an issue for the United States, you know, kind of, uh, trying and failing to appeal to a large number of global South nations on the Ukraine war, but also on China, uh, which is, of course, a relic of, of U.S. foreign policy over the last few decades. But, um, you know, something that uh, I think is going to be a struggle for this administration uh, in an ongoing way. Let's go to our new, 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 Coco, 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 war, 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 war <laughs> updates. Uh, and why don't we start with the balloon? Yes, so the Great Balloon War of 2023 is continuing. Uh, the uh, Biden administration declassified uh, some intelligence on what it says is a fleet. This was late last week, a fleet of Chinese spy balloons that have been allegedly spying on something like 40 countries around the world. Uh, the They blacklisted six Chinese entities uh, who were apparently responsible for the Balloon of Death program. Uh, the, uh, the Chinese government, uh, retali retorted, retaliated, I guess, uh, by saying that no fewer than 10 U.S. balloons have entered Chinese airspace since the start of 2022. Uh, the U.S. government denied that, uh, allegation. Um, and it's, it's not entirely clear whether the U.S. actually does have a fleet of spy balloons, although, of course, the U.S. is spying on China countless through countless means every second of the day probably um the other thing to to report here uh on the balloon front is of course i think people followed the uh shooting down of all those objects last week and over the weekend there was one in uh alaska one in the yukon in canada one in uh over lake huron uh 
these were all yeah, I mean, they got roped into the balloon story, and I, I can understand why uh, the U.S. government now apparently believes that A, they were not Chinese, and B, they were probably not doing any spying. Uh, they were probably civilian research craft, if anything. Uh, they, the argument now is not that they shot them down because there's they were Chinese and there was you know fear of uh, surveillance or anything but because they were flying at a, an altitude around 40,000 feet where they could have posed risks to civilian aircraft I find this uh, a little bit specious but uh, sure if that's what they're going to go with why not uh, the other thing uh, that's probably worth noting uh, is that apparently the the third of these the the shoot down over Lake Huron on Sunday, uh, the F-16 uh, that brought that balloon down needed two shots to get the job done. Its first missile missed and uh, I guess splashed down, uh, causing no harm, but it, it took a second missile to bring it down. I, I don't know this for a fact, but it may be the first time in history that a military jet has dog f- had to dogfight a weather balloon. Uh, we'll have to look into that and, and uh, you know, if anybody uh, out there knows the, the history shot. of that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, if you just shoot it down, that's fine. If you get into two shots, that that could technically, technically be a, a, a dogfight, I think. So uh, if anybody out there has a, any history of the encounter between jets and balloons uh, uh, around the world in the past, uh, please let us know. Uh, there's one other uh, point here to make in the new Cold War front, which is that the U.S. has been uh, making inroads uh, in the South Pacific. Uh, there was uh, a report over the weekend that the U.S. Uh, and the Micronesian government agreed on a memorandum of understanding for the renewal of their of Micronesia's uh, free association agreement. This is a deal that. Um, the Federated States of Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, Palau, all have these ar- arrangements uh, with these Pacific Island states. They've had them since the 1980s. Basically, it gives the uh, all three nations access to U.S. aid to other U.S. programs in return for giving the U.S. military free reign, essentially, to uh, move around those the, the territories of those countries. Uh, those deals were renewed in 2003. They're up for renewal now, and uh, the Biden administration is now, after having uh, decided to re-emphasize the South Pacific uh, because of the new Cold War, uh, has now completed uh, MOUs with all three countries. I don't have... Uh, uh, there have been a, a few reports it's of what memorandum might be in these packages. of understanding. Yes, Uh there might be, there have been some reports of what might be uh, in these agreements, but nothing firm. So, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I think there's some uh, additional U.S. aid, some remediation, uh, uh, I don't know what I'm saying, remediation, I guess, uh, for uh, nuclear testing that went on in this region uh, way back in the uh, height of the, the glorious first Cold War. Uh, which would be a fir- which is a first really for the United States to, to offer that kind of aid. Uh, the other country of note uh, here uh, is Papua New Guinea. The U.S. is reportedly close. Uh, this is according to uh, Reuters uh, also over the weekend, uh, reportedly close to reaching a defense cooperation agreement uh, with Papua New Guinea that would, again, expand on the, uh, an existing relationship, uh, probably give the U.S. greater access to Papua New Guinea for quote-unquote law enforcement purposes or, you know, some military uh some military maneuvers, it wouldn't, uh, it, it certainly will not uh, mention China or anything, you know, uh, about China or make it uh, 
clear in any way that this is about China, but it's it, it is clearly uh, about China. They they haven't completely hashed out the agreements, so no details uh, have been made public. But that's another uh, you know along the lines of uh, the U.S. really pouring attention on uh, the Pacific Islands. Uh, this is uh, you know just par for the course at this point. Derek, you are the news prophet, and I am just a follower. But thank you so much for climbing down from Mount News to deliver the message. Uh, Everyone, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.